Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the City of St. Augustine presents their annual Noche de Gala, celebrating the birthday of city founder Don Pedro Menendez de Avilés. So in portraying Menendez, for example, Chaz has brought to light that Menendez lost a a son. It was a son that disappeared here. We'll remember how a huge project called the Miami Jetport was almost built on what are now environmentally protected lands. This was done very quietly and very quickly. And Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in professional sports on March 17, 1946 in Daytona Beach. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Don Pedro Menendez de Avilés leads a procession of colorfully dressed 16th century Spanish colonists from the gates of St. Augustine to what is now the Leitner Museum to enjoy music, food, magicians, and swordsmen. It's not 1565, it's the annual Noche de Gala celebrating the 491st birthday of Don Pedro Menendez de Avilés, the founder of St. Augustine. Dana St. Clair is Director of the Department of Heritage Tourism and Historic Preservation and Executive Director of the 450th Commemoration Commission for the City of St. Augustine. We celebrate uh, 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 Don Pedro Menendez's de Avila's birthday every year. It's the Noche de Gala. It's probably the one of the most unique uh, celebrations or galas in uh, in the country uh, because of the 16th century pageantry, uh, which is very much a part of the festival. This year, we have portraying Pedro Menendez. We have the very famous actor Chaz Mena, who plays a judge on Law and Order. He's known for his stage work in New York and has done film work as well, too. Chaz was part of our earlier programming last fall and has agreed to come on and play the, the lively uh, character 
of Pedro Menendez, something that he has created personally and will bring to life. Part of the Noche de Gala festivities include actor Chaz Mena portraying Pedro Menendez de Avales interacting with the audience. Dana St. Clair says that the Noche de Gala celebration has led to the rediscovery of some largely forgotten facts about Menendez. We know a lot more now, interestingly enough, that Chaz Mena, an actor, would bring that to life. His research has been meticulous, and that's what Chaz does. When he researches a character, he really digs in, and he, he, he wants to know the personal details. He wants to know more about his family life. So in portraying Menendez, for example, Chaz has brought to light that Menendez lost a, a son. It was a son that disappeared here. So he's able to, beyond the, the, uh, the fierce uh, military leader that he was known as, bring some personal aspects to, to his life and the history of Menendez as well, too, that helps us understand that he was fighting through not only political issues, but fighting through personal issues as well, too. This year's Noche de Gala comes as plans are being made to celebrate St. Augustine's 450th anniversary in 2015. St. Augustine was established in 1565 on September 8th, the feast day of St. Augustine. As Dana St. Clair explains, the commemoration is starting early with recognition of the 500th anniversary of the naming of Florida in 2013. Well, the celebration, the commemoration is a three-year linear event that commemorates four and a half centuries of unbroken history in St. Augustine. We are the, the first city in the United States to be able to celebrate 450 years of continuous occupation. We bill ourselves as the oldest city. We, we take great pride in uh, telling everyone that we are the oldest continuously occupied European settlement in the continental United States. That's how we qualify that. That means when Pedro Menendez in 1565 landed, St. Augustine has been occupied ever since. So we want to commemorate that. We want to commemorate the four and a half centuries of history, not on one particular static day, but we want to celebrate over a long period of time and also celebrate the cultural diversity that makes the city so much of what it is today and, and made it what it was back then. So we start our commemoration on the 500th anniversary of the landing or the founding of Florida by Juan Ponce de Leon in 1513. That's coming up right around the corner. Uh, we start in 2013 and we finish the two and a half, three year linear World's Fair, if you will, in 2015. So again, it's not a static event in time. It's a three year celebration. We plan on having signature events and festivals and expo pavilions. The country of Spain is involved. Uh, other countries are. There are many organizations nationally. The commemoration, in an official sense, was formed as part of a congressional initiative back in March of last year. Public Law 111-11 was passed that formed the 450th St. Augustine 450th Commemoration Commission, which forms a federal commission. The Secretary of the Interior is currently doing that. 
So we have a lot of structure. We have a local steering committee of regional organizational heads that has come together to provide us with oversight and direction. And we've already begun our planning process. So we're well underway and we have about three years of planning before us for a two and a half year um, anniversary event. And there's a great deal to do and we're all excited about it. Chaz Mena and costumed revelers add a theatrical element to St. Augustine's Noche de Gala. Longtime Floridians and visitors in decades past fondly remember Cross and Sword, the official state play of Florida, which premiered in 1965 as part of St. Augustine's 400th anniversary celebration. The outdoor drama by Paul Green continued to be performed every summer until 1997, when the state of Florida declined to provide the production with $27,000 to continue. Dana St. Clair says that Cross and Sword might be revised and revived for the city's 450th anniversary. We would like to do that and on a grander scale. One of the signature events that has been discussed, and this is still in the conceptual design phase, is to develop a production that's very similar but that encompasses many of the other cultures that have contributed to the historical development of St. Augustine and, and Florida. Cross and Sword played a very important role in helping visitors understand the rich history of St. Augustine. We want to bring that to a national and international audience as well, too. Part of our brand is First America. That's a name that has been out there for about a year or so. We want the rest of the country to understand that it wasn't Jamestown in 1607 or the Pilgrims in 1620 that, that uh, served as the genesis of America. It was really St. Augustine that provided the colonial foundation of, of the rest of, of America in 1565. So Spain has a very big interest in this. They also have a very big interest in, in how that is portrayed. Perhaps one of the greatest ways that we could do that would be to resurrect, if you will, the cross and sword play, add to it, make substantial contributions so it includes a great deal of cultural diversity, and come out with a signature event that visitors, millions of visitors, could enjoy over the next 10 years or so. Part of the multi-year commemoration celebration in St. Augustine will include a reinterpretation and redesigning of the visitor experience in the city under the direction of Dana St. Clair. Well, we are currently in uh, the restructuring stage now. Uh, we have uh, the Department of Heritage Tourism is one of the largest departments in, in the city of St. Augustine. There's roughly 500,000 square feet of physical plan. It includes a four-story parking garage, a visitor information center, about 40 state and city-owned properties uh, that we manage historic properties. St. George Street, the plazas, uh, needless to say, St. Augustine has a great deal of history and a great deal of historic resources. And part of what it is that heritage tourism does is organize the visitor experience. So we are working on elevating our heritage landscape, improving the infrastructure for visitors. And needless to say, as we move towards 
a monumental event, a very large event, a three-year or linear World's Fair, if you will, like the commemoration, then our heritage programs and our infrastructure have to be in place. So our signature interpretive program is the Spanish Quarter Village, the, the colonial Spanish Quarter, and the Government House Museum, which we are in now. Um, there are a lot of interpretive facilities that we are redesigning and improving in an effort to deliver on visitor expectations and preferences. That's really what we're going uh, with. It's, there's been a, a shift in the way visitors see museums and see interpretive programs. And part of what we want to do is deliver on those visitor preferences and expectations by developing programs that meet their interests and, and their needs. And we're currently doing that all the while maintaining a very strong line of authenticity and historical representation. But um, we have a lot of surprises for folks. A lot of new things are going to come to St. Augustine uh, from the rebuilding of, of uh, one of Menendez's uh, ships, a replica of one of his ships, uh, to public archaeology uh, uh, programs. Uh, to colonial uh, agriculture and, and uh, gardening. We have a lot of things, a lot of things that uh, we want to do that respond directly to the interest of our visitor base, which numbers uh, four million or so. The Noche de Gala begins a long series of celebrations recognizing Florida's colonial history. In May, the Florida Historical Society will be holding their annual meeting at the Casa Monica Hotel. Exciting presentations, historic tours, and a banquet dinner are all part of that event. For more information, visit myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. If you hit the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society, you'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and a special gift. That's myfloridahistory.org.
pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. The people a dollar and a half just to see 'em. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Today, the Florida Everglades and much of the adjacent property are environmentally protected lands. But as Janie Gould reports, in the late 1960s, plans were underway to build a huge jet port that would have forever impacted Florida's natural environment. At the dawn of Florida's environmental movement in the late 60s, a mammoth building project was being carved out of the Big Cypress Swamp. It was going to be the Miami Jet Port, a huge complex 40 miles from Miami. Dade County was buying land for it and got federal funds to build the first runway. This was done very quietly and very quickly. Nat Reed was the environmental advisor to Florida Governor Claude Kirk. Kirk went down for its inaugural flight. Came back and said, "Gee, you ought to see this thing. It's going to really transform aviation in South Florida." Bob Patrick, who was a member of the South Florida Water Management District Board, called me and said, "Boss," had a great Southern accent. "Boss, there's nothing but trouble out there. It's going to disrupt the entire water flow pattern." So Reed went to see it for himself. I couldn't believe my eyes. The next day, he met with the governor and told him, I have grave doubts about the wisdom of this. I know it sounds to you, on your promoting side of you, a good idea. But let me point out a couple of things that it's really distant from Miami. And to get people from the airport to Miami, is we're going to require a high-speed train crossing the Everglades. I think we ought to really stop and think and really make a judgment of whether we really want the state to be involved. Would it have replaced the current airport, the Miami airport? Well, it would have been a disaster financially. Kirk agreed to set up a committee of experts who would study the jet port and possible consequences. Reed also urged the governor to discuss the project with the U.S. Secretary of Interior, Walter Hickel, who knew the area. He and Kirk and I had been in the Everglades together for a wild night. A great deal of booze and a great deal of fun. I went to bed, but the two of them stayed up and made great friends. Telling stories telling and all stories that. Telling stories endlessly, going out looking for alligators and having a bunny time. Another federal official, Russell Train, had a home near Reeds on Jupiter Island. He called me back and he said, what the hell is this jet board? And he said, why haven't you stopped it? And I said, well, a little bit more complicated than that. The committee wrote 101 questions about the project, which they planned to pose at a meeting called by Jetport Boosters, including the mayor of Miami, Chuck Hall, and port director, Alan Stewart. The mayor was at the podium. He read the question, and then the answer was, this question is under study. Question number two. He read the question. This question is under study. Don't tell me he did that for all 101 questions. At eight, I'd had it. So I stood up and I said, Mayor... Are the next 93 questions going to be answered? This is understudy. He said, you are a white militant. Shut up. This is my meeting. You are a white militant. I said, whether I'm a white militant or not, I represent the governor of Florida. Are the next 93 questions going to be answered the same way? Finally, one of the officials said this to Reed. We're going to build you a glass house and fill it with butterflies. It was well known that I had loved 
collecting butterflies as a youth. And we're going to give you your own little butterfly net. And I said, thank you so much, director. Just answer the one question. Are you going to effectively answer any one of these questions? No, they're all under study. There were TV cameramen, all the writing press was there. There must have been 80 members of the federal state government, county government, upstream government, transportation experts, ecologists. The room exploded. The mayor and Stuart had an escape room. Literally, literally back door. Out, out the back door and gone into a limousine and gone, saying we took care of those guys. Or not. The Jetport made front-page news the next day all over the country. It all led to a federal probe of the project, and in 1970, President Nixon canceled the Jetport. The Big Cypress Swamp became a federally protected preserve. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. It's often said that Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in professional sports in 1947 when he began playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Actually, Robinson broke that barrier a year before, on March 17, 1946, while playing in Daytona Beach. Bill Dudley has more. They returned to Sanford, and the second inning of a game, a police officer walks onto the field with his gun drawn and escorts Robinson off the field, saying there will be, you know, he's not allowed to play. Chris Lamb is professor in media studies at Charleston College in South Carolina. His book, Blackout, the untold story of Jackie Robinson's first spring training, details the harrowing events of March and April 1946, when the man who has been called the most influential athlete in history came to Florida's East Coast. Lamb says he decided to write the book while working as a journalist in Daytona Beach. A fellow there in the city told me that this is where Jackie Robinson played his first spring training, and I thought I knew everything about baseball, and I had never heard of it. So I started investigating, and sure enough, I did find that Jackie Robinson's first spring training was in 1946 in Daytona Beach, Florida. And this is the ground zero for the integration of baseball. Late in 1945, Brooklyn Dodgers manager Branch Rickey assigned Jackie Robinson to the Dodgers minor league affiliate, the Montreal Royals. After a difficult and often humiliating journey across country from Los Angeles, the ballplayer and his new bride arrived in Florida. He and another black player, Johnny Wright, reported for spring training tryouts in Sanford on Monday, March 4, 1946. Their arrival went unreported by the white news media. A lot of them just ignored it, and especially you find this in the Florida newspapers who are right there, you know, on, on Jackie Robinson's first day of practice. There are no Florida newspapers there. But the black ball players were being closely watched, both by black newspapers nationwide and the local Jim Crow establishment. Everything goes fairly smoothly for the first couple of days. I mean, Robinson and Wright have to stay with black families in the black part of Sanford. 
but there is no outward conflict. And then after the second day of practice, a white man walks up to where the Robinsons are staying, and he tells a, a reporter, Wendell Smith, he says, are you with the black ball players? And Wendell Smith said, yes, I am. And the, and the man says, well, you better get them out of here by sundown, because if they're not out of here by sundown, we're coming to get them. And within a matter of half an hour, they were all packed up in their car and, and headed to Daytona Beach. Practice continued at the Dodgers' Daytona Beach Center, but it quickly became apparent that the Royals would not be welcome anywhere else in the state. The first time they have an away game, and they pack and, and they go off to Jacksonville, Florida, and they get up to the ballpark, and the ballpark is padlocked, and they, they cancel the game. That was the law in Florida. That was the law in the South in 1946. It was segregation laws prohibited blacks and whites from taking the field. During that spring, only one city, only Daytona Beach, lets Jackie Robinson play any games. And the first game they play is a game where the Royals play the the major league team, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And it's packed. It's packed beyond capacity. 4,000 people are there. And and blacks talk about it in church all day, and ministers pray about it all morning. And black folks are walking in parades, the kids running ahead and holding the arms of old people as they walk up to the gate. City Island Ballpark in Daytona Beach is now known as Jackie Robinson Stadium, but it was still segregated. Blacks had to sit down the right field line and whites could sit everywhere else, but there were no incidents. This is an amazing time, really, in the South. People really didn't know what was going to happen in terms of race relations or in terms of political and social change generally. University of South Florida historian Ray Arsenault. Just after the war, there were such high hopes on the part of African Americans all across the South. So many returning veterans who had had experiences during the war that had taken them out of the Jim Crow existence that they had known for most of their lives. There had been the campaign during the war for the double V, victory at home and abroad. But many white Americans in Florida and elsewhere seemed equally anxious to preserve the status quo. There was a a widespread effort on the part of white supremacists to uh, sort of put the genie back in the bottle to send a clear message that despite what had happened during the war, despite the double V campaign, that they had no intention of loosening the Jim Crow system. African Americans never lost hope in Jackie Robinson, who, after a rough start, earned his way onto the Royals team, finally taking the field as a first baseman with the Dodgers on April 15, 1947, a date that will live in baseball's history. Baseball was the first institution you know, to become integrated after the war. Baseball has its, has its place in history. The place in history is begins at City Island Ballpark in Daytona Beach. And a story like this, what it does with me, and, and I think what it does with other people who have read it, it gets them thinking about what's right and what's fair. And if you can get people thinking about those things, you can move people toward a better day for all of us. Author Chris Lamb, Blackout, the untold story of Jackie Robinson's first spring training, is published by University of Nebraska Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, but until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.